Good morning. Good morning. Some of you are here for Jim's introduction. My name is Will Groban, and I'm speaking this morning for Pastor Charlie, who's away taking care of something else. I can't really tell you how much it means to me to have this opportunity to be here, but I thought I'd try it this way. I have had guns pointed at my head a couple of times in my life by angry men. And I was in a blimp that was dive bombing towards the ground after missing its landing field. And I've walked or run through pitch black woods in the middle of the inner city multiple times. Then I got married and now I have a two year old. So I have experienced some stress and some anxiety in my life. But I don't know that I was ever as anxious as when I was pastoring a church and I put somebody else in the pulpit. Because it's a grave responsibility to stand up here and say you're representing Christ to the church. And when you put somebody else in your pulpit, you still have that responsibility, but now you've lost control. So it means a lot that Pastor Charlie trusted me enough to let me come and speak to you today. Hopefully we won't disappoint him, right? I have known Pastor Charlie for about 10 years, a little over 10 years, and we have a great mutual respect for each other, and that's been fun. We haven't seen each other a lot the last few years because I've been living out of state, but when I'm down here, we get together, we have lunch, and it's been a, a chance to mutually encourage each other over the years, whether it's through Facebook or, or live. So I told some of you that I did go to seminary. I went to Dallas Seminary, and I'm an ordained pastor, and I pastored a church, a small church, for a little while, a few years, but right now I'm staying home with my little girl. That's my big job. She's two, and we're teaching her. She, she's at church this morning up in St. Petersburg. She's very excited about church, which is a huge blessing in my life. So that's enough about me. Let's pray, and then we will get to the good stuff, see what God has for us in his word. Before I pray, Jim said some of you couldn't hear him because he has a deep voice. If you can't hear me, just like point up, and I will try to project a little better, okay? Father, thank you for this chance to come together this morning to exalt you. That is our goal. Even while we're studying, we want this to be a time when we're worshiping. We pray that you will help the, the preacher this morning to speak accurately and coherently, and that you will use this message, you will use your revelation to inspire us and build us up that we would be stronger in faith and more determined to walk in your light, in your will, in relationship with you each day of our lives. We thank you for the opportunity to be here and for the opportunity to know you through Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to begin with a question. Those of you in the room, if this applies to you, I'd like you to raise your hand. If you're watching online, you can raise your hand if you want to, but it's not going to do us much good. So my question is, how many of you have read all of the Old Testament prophets? Okay, a few of you. That's good. Some hands. If you haven't, you should, right? I mean, you should read through the whole Bible at least once in your life. And then hopefully you go back and you read it through again. Because God will continue to feed you as you spend time in his word. So if you haven't read all the Old Testament prophets, I encourage you to buy a good study Bible. You're going to want the notes and then give it a shot, okay? Those of you who have read at least some of the prophets, how many of you can honestly say that you love reading the Old Testament prophets? 
Okay, still some hands. That's good. You know, most people can't say that. The prophets use a lot of figurative language and arcane or obscure references. And so they can be hard to understand. And it's hard for a lot of people to find any relevance for today in what the prophets were writing so long ago. I admit the first time I read through the prophets, the main thing I got out of it was a long list of questions. But that's okay. That's a place to start. And as I went back and learned, especially in seminary, how to study the prophets more carefully, well, then I found them fascinating and valuable. So today, I want to study with you the first prophecy in a book called Haggai. You can turn there in your Bible if you want to. If you don't know how to find Haggai, don't feel bad. It's a very small book. We don't go there very often. That's why your Bible has a table of contents. In fact, newer print Bibles have two tables of contents now. One of them's alphabetical, so it's even easier to find a book like Haggai. While you're turning there, for those of you who aren't 100% digital, I'll tell you that when I was doing my research, I read that pastors only preach from Haggai when they're starting a building fund campaign. But you can relax, okay? This prophecy is not about raising money. Haggai and God have a much more important message for us than that. The real question is, will you understand the message God gave through Haggai, and will you find it relevant to your life? I sincerely hope that in the next 30 to 40 minutes, you will emphatically answer yes to both questions. If you can't answer yes to both questions, tell Charlie you... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let me know, and maybe I can explain it better. All right? Now, before we go into the text itself, I want to sketch the scene for you, give you a little historical context. And I want to start about 200 years before Haggai, when the prophet Isaiah was kicking around because he predicted the downfall of the southern nation of Israel named Judah and the destruction of her capital city, Jerusalem, and the destruction of even the sacred temple on Mount Zion in that city. But Isaiah also predicted that God would use a future non-believer named Cyrus to facilitate reconstruction of the temple and the city. Over 100 years later, in 586 BC, the Babylonians came along and they did conquer Judah. They destroyed most of Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. Most Judeans were exiled to Babylon or like the prophet Jeremiah, they drifted off to Egypt to live. 46 years after that, Persia conquered Babylon. And in 539 BC, the Persian king named Cyrus, of course, because God said it would be, allowed about 50,000 Jews to return to the area around Jerusalem. Now, I want you to know that that was actually a faithful and courageous decision, these people coming back, because we think that they had a comfortable life in Babylon by this time. But the area around Jerusalem was devastated. And one thing we have to keep in mind as we study a book like Haggai is that the temple was essential before the exile to the worship of the nation Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. So reconstruction of the temple was a necessary part of reconstructing the city. Plus God had said it was going to happen, so it had to happen. The returning exiles immediately set up a functioning altar for sacrifices. And within two years, they had completed all the stonework for the foundation of the temple. But then work stopped for almost two decades. And that was the situation 
when Haggai got his first prophecy from God. As far as we know, this was the first direct communication from God to the post-exilic community. And as we'll see today, it radically altered their relationship with God, and it did facilitate rebuilding the temple. So let's read through the first chapter of Haggai together today, and then we'll spend some time talking about what we can draw from it for our lives today. I'm going to be reading from the NIV 2011 today, but you can follow along in the translation of your choice. Turns out they all tell the same story. (laughs) We begin with the first verse, Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Stop for a second. Before we even go on to hear what God said, I want to clarify three things for you. First of all, the first day of the sixth month of King Darius' second year was August 29th, 520 B.C. on our calendar. We know exactly when this happened. And because of that, we know that all the people would have been gathered up on the Temple Mount because the Mosaic Covenant required a burnt offering for the first day of the lunar month. That's from Numbers 28. Zerubbabel has a Babylonian name because he was born in exile. But Zerubbabel was the grandson of King Jehoiachin, who had surrendered Jerusalem to the Babylonians. And later, the Bible named Zerubbabel as a direct ancestor to Jesus. So at this time, probably Zerubbabel is the rightful king over all of Israel. The Persians had made him governor of a small area around Jerusalem. Joshua was a legitimate high priest, descended from the line of Aaron, son of Josadak or Jehozadak, the high priest who had been deported to Babylon. So in God's eyes, the people had legitimate leadership at this time, both politically and spiritually, even though they were still a conquered nation under Persia. Well, let's see what God said to these two leaders. Verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house meaning the temple. In Hebrew, Haggai called God Yahweh Tzvaot, which our Bibles translate as Lord of hosts or Lord Almighty. The Hebrew word Zava referred to military troops. For God, it means angelic armies. The Bible uses Yahweh Tzvaot to emphasize Yahweh as the all-powerful God. The prophets referred to God this way to frighten people into revering God or to encourage them into trusting God. And as we'll see, both of those things were necessary at this time. It is this God who says to the two leaders of the returning remnant of people, in verse 2, these people, right? Not my people. God says, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. I think we can infer that God was not pleased with these people for this thought. We know from Ezra chapters 1 through 6 that there were external pressures coming against the community to encourage them not to build the temple. But God identifies the problem as internal to the people themselves. Year after year, they have decided to delay rebuilding the temple. Next, God, through Haggai, spoke to the gathered people themselves. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. 
Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses, while this house, the temple, remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. So here's the essence of God's complaint. The people had neglected to rebuild the temple, but they'd worked pretty hard to build nice houses for themselves. God's house was a ruin, while they had houses with nicely finished wood paneling inside. God had blessed them to return to the land, and they've been begging him for protection and provision. But while building nicely paneled houses for themselves, they totally neglected to rebuild the temple. And the implication in God's question here is that the people had misplaced priorities. They were living for themselves instead of for God. There's also irony in God's diction here, and this is one of the things I love about the Bible. God the Father speaking through the prophets, Jesus when he walked the earth, the inspired authors of scripture all use wordplay, irony, and other literary devices to drive home their point. It's fun because that way, the more you study, the deeper you go, the more of these things you see, and it entertains you just a little bit more. So I want to tell you about the irony God points out here. It's about their paneled houses. Because you see, several hundred years earlier when David was the king, he felt guilty about living in a paneled palace while the house of God was neglected. So he wanted to build that first temple. You'll find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David's son Solomon did build that temple and he made it magnificent because he too lived in a nicely paneled palace. 1 Kings chapter 7. Now the people have neglected to rebuild the temple, though they've constructed for themselves not just shelters, but really nice houses, even paneled houses. God has a strong sense of irony. Sometimes in scripture it shows up in humorous ways, and it's more fun to preach, <laughs> but here it's a powerful tool for driving conviction. And again, Haggai refers to God as Yahweh Tzvaot, emphasizing God's authority and power. The all-powerful and sovereign God said, give careful thought to your ways. The Hebrew calls for the utmost and prayerful reflection. God wanted these people to sense the conviction that they had neglected their duty, that they had failed to show God proper reverence. Give careful thought to your ways. Think carefully about what you are doing. How would you feel if God said that to you? Maybe he is. You know, as Christians, we really should give careful thought to our ways, right? How we're living, how we allocate our time during the week, or our budget, our attitudes, our priorities, the methods we use to accomplish our goals. But I think as Christians... Speaking as a pastor, I think a lot of us don't spend enough time considering our ways. And so we actually fail to please God a lot of the time. I wanted to tell you about something I found profitable in the past, and I need to get back to it because I haven't been doing this either. It is to set aside periodically, maybe once, twice, four times a year, whatever you can afford to do, but set aside a whole morning. Call it a day of prayer. Spend an hour just reading scripture. Then go through worship in song, in praise, and thanksgiving. Then go through guided confession. Never fun, but very useful. 
Then pray for yourself and everybody you know, your enemies, your friends, your family. And now you've spent several hours really tuning into God and tuning out the world and your whole life. Then you spend some time in prayerful reflection about your life. You pull out your calendar. You pull out your budget. You look at what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? How are you going to do it? You know, it's amazing how well you can hear God's voice when you take time to listen. I've always been amazed at how many sins he points out for me when I'm going through guided confession. Maybe that's why I don't do it anymore. i got to get back to this. <laughs> but really, my point today is that when you've gone through several hours of focusing on God and then you have this reflective time about your life, quite often God will nudge you in a different direction. I wouldn't be a pastor today if that hadn't happened for me. I'm not saying that, you know, to discourage you from going and doing it. You may not want to be a pastor. I didn't want to be a pastor. But it's amazing what God might tell you. Okay, back to the text. Wrong sermon. Chapter 6. I mean, verse 6. The message of God continued. God says, You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Again, Yahweh Zavado to emphasize God's authority and power. And now God is telling them, think about what's happening to you and why. The words God used in verse 6 in Hebrew would have reminded the people of the language in the Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant was very clear. If the people collectively were walking with God, responding in faith and obedience to God's revelation, then he would bless them in every way imaginable. But if they turned away from God to pursue their own plans, their own goals, use their own methods, well, then God not only would remove some of those blessings that they walked away from, he would actually bring curses on them so that they would feel the conviction that they needed to repent. To repent means you turn away from your path of sin and you get back walking with God. Haggai's audience were to interpret their struggles as a sign that they had strayed from God and that now they were facing discipline to bring them back. This becomes much more clear as we look at the next few verses. Verse 8, Haggai continued, Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. That's what it says in the Hebrew. God blew it away. <sighs> Suggesting the frailty of our efforts in the face of God's sovereignty, right? Also suggesting judgment. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So these people at this time were really struggling. They had bad harvests and weak animals, whether in the fields or in the hills. They were suffering in their harvest of the grape, the olive, the grain, everything. And why were they struggling? Because God had brought a drought. And why did God do that? Because the Mosaic Covenant 
calls for a drought in a time of general disobedience. How are they disobedient? They had left God's temple in ruins because they focused on improving their own houses. In a touch of poetic irony, the Hebrew words for drought and ruin are spelled with the same consonants, which has a significance in Hebrew that is kind of lost in English. The people allowed the temple to be charev, so God brought a chorev. Again, we have to remember that the temple was vitally important. And I think this is hard for us to understand because there's nothing comparable in our lives today. The temple was the central place of worship. It was the visible marvel that called people to worship the one true God. That part we get. But you see also the temple was in some sense the very place where God dwelt among his people. The temple was necessary for access to God through the priests and for pleasing God with the sacrifices. Yet instead of investing in the ministry by rebuilding the temple, these people had used God's blessings to indulge themselves. And now the irony was that after almost two decades, God could contrast his house as a ruin with their houses having luxurious paneling. And the people had made two mistakes, and these mistakes are common throughout Scripture and very common in our churches today. First of all, they'd put their own selfish desires ahead of God's desires. And second, they were relying on their own reasoning and their own capabilities to rebuild their community instead of relying on God and his revelation. Well, what was the corrective then? Under the Mosaic Covenant, and believe me, everything in the Old Testament ties back to the law, to the covenant, okay? Under that covenant, if the people repented, if they turned away from their sinful path and returned to walking with God by faith and obedience, then God would restore their blessing. And God gives them a step of repentance right here. Go into the hills, bring back the wood that's necessary for building the temple. They already had all the stone they would need on site, but they had to go gather wood because the Babylonians had burned it all back in 586 BC. If they gathered that wood, construction could proceed and God would be both glorified and pleased with their obedience. So how do you think the people would respond to something like this? We find out in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Some English translations say the people respected God, but that's a little bit weak as an English translation. We're talking about at least deep reverence here. The Hebrew word yare literally means to fear. And this is the word that the Bible uses to talk about people's response to a time of judgment. They saw God's power, his perfect righteousness, his wrath about sin. So they feared God. They feared him enough to repent. You know what? This is how it's supposed to work, right? The prophet calls the people back into right covenant relationship with God. The people, and especially their leaders, repent and get back walking with God. And so God is glorified both by their fear or reverence, which is a change in attitude, and by their obedience, which is a change in behavior. 
this is a much better response than a lot of the prophets got before the exile. God's people weren't always open to being rebuked. But these people, with the exile still fresh in their minds, wanted to please God. And here's the key. They were willing to see their error and correct their ways. So I think the term remnant here is theologically significant. It doesn't refer to them only as the remnant of people who return to the land. It refers to them as the believing remnant. They responded to the revelation of God. They are the believing remnant mentioned by the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos so long ago. Let's finish our passage. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. So 23 days after God spoke angrily, he spoke again. And since the first prophecy came during the harvest, probably the people have used this time to think about what God said, to consider their ways, and to get ready for action. And now God said, I am with you. Why would that be important? I think one reason is that it shows God's unconditional love and relationship. God doesn't abandon his people when they require discipline. In fact, he disciplines them to bring them back to himself in good relationship. The believing remnant will always emerge from a time of discipline, further sanctified or purified for walking with God and doing his work. And a second reason this is important is it indicates God's provision and empowerment at a time of human adversity. Ezra tells us there were still these external pressures against building the temple. But God assured them that he would empower them to complete his work despite any worldly obstacles, even things that might seem insurmountable to people. As I was studying this, it reminded me of when Jesus asked his disciples after the resurrection, he didn't ask them, he commanded them after the resurrection to go and make more disciples. They knew the situation they were in. They knew that they were going to be harassed, arrested, beaten, put in jail, even killed to share this message of grace from the Messiah. To, a, to the Jewish community who had rejected that Messiah and to the Gentile community who worshipped other gods entirely. And it must have seemed very daunting to them, especially knowing Jesus was about to leave them by ascending to heaven. But then in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus will empower us to do his work just as God energized Haggai's community to complete the temple. After decades of apathy toward the ministry of God, they stirred themselves up and sprang into action because of the prophecy God gave through Haggai. Today, we look for that internal response in ourselves, and we look for the same divine reassurance from God. So that's our story. 
Can we learn from it? Can we learn from a prophecy given over 2,500 years ago to a totally different community, facing totally different circumstances, and even with a totally different covenant relationship with God? Now you don't sound as sure. I got a lot of yeses at the beginning. But <laughs> well, obviously, I think the answer is yes, or I wouldn't have spent the last half hour telling you about it. <laughs> this first prophecy of Haggai didn't foretell anything about the future. Did you notice that? Instead of foretelling, this is what scholars call forth-telling. Forth, F-O-R-T-H, telling. The prophet calls the people back into a right covenant relationship with God. Pastors today teach God's revelation, asking you to respond with faith and obedience, hoping that you want to walk with God, and so you are willing to repent as much as needed. And thus we all end up stronger in faith and more willing, more determined to live as God's image bearers. By the way, God uses these sermons on the pastor long before they get to you. Okay, so don't think I'm standing up here saying I'm super righteous and not, you know, it's not like that. But we're doing something similar to the prophets, similar, not exactly the same. The people of Haggai's community let life pressures deter them from doing what was right. Does that ever happen today? I think it happens all too often. At the same time, Haggai's people were depending on themselves, relying on human methods to rebuild their community, to accomplish what they wanted to do, instead of depending on God and his revelation. Do we make that mistake? Sure we do. Haggai's people needed to remember that the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, had all the power and authority in the universe. They should have made God their priority. They should have depended on his protection while doing what was right. They should have trusted in his provision. And they should have made sure that they were responding to his revelation. Since they had not, God withdrew his blessing somewhat to call them back. One theme that we find throughout the book of Haggai is that God deserves and he demands our devotion to be our priority. There is no excuse in God's eyes for us neglecting our relationship with God or his will for us. Under the Mosaic Covenant, the people could expect great blessings when they collectively were walking with God and curses when they were generally disobedient. Haggai warned them to give careful thought to their ways and told them that their recent struggles were due to neglecting God's will. You and I also must not let life pressures deter us from doing what is right. We don't have a temple to build, but we do have a calling to go out and evangelize among the lost, to be a part of the edification ministries of the church, to gather weekly to exalt God together. If we let our children or our leisure, our school, our work, outside social pressures, or our material concerns like fixing up our houses to displace God as our priority, well then we're making the same mistake as Haggai's people in not showing God adequate devotion. Another way to show God devotion, or that we fail to do so, is when we allow something other than God to become our desire. Because then we start watching TV or surfing the internet when we should be having quiet time. 
or we start to live to accumulate honors and wealth instead of seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. This is about using our resources, whatever God has blessed us with, to do his will, to serve his purposes instead of our own. Like the people of Haggai's community, we get distracted by our worldly goals and our materialistic desires. And so we invest too much in those and not enough in worship or in ministry. A second theme in Haggai is that God deserves and demands our dependence. He is the Almighty, not only able to meet all of our provisional, protective, and empowerment needs today, but completely sovereign over world events, which he will manipulate to bring about his will for messianic judgment and rule. Believing in his promises and trusting in his faithfulness, we can have hope and encouragement despite whatever obstacles we're facing in life. Haggai communicated God's name, Lord of hosts or Lord Almighty, multiple times and told the people that their attempts at self-reliance had been futile and even sinful. You and I also must not rely only on our own ideas and our own efforts. Yes, we're supposed to think and we're supposed to work, but we need to depend on God and his revelation for our protection and provision. When we depend only on ourselves, we start to rationalize, cutting corners, using white lies, cheating the system a little, breaking small laws. And when we do those things, we fail to reflect God's character. We fail to represent God to those around us. Depending on ourselves too much also will lead us to either hopelessness or arrogance, depending on who we are and what our circumstances are. We need to remember daily that we absolutely need God's blessing for salvation. We need God's blessing for spiritual growth. We need God's blessing just to survive and thrive in this life without slipping back into our fleshly, worldly ways. Like the people of Haggai's community, we need to find our courage in God and trust in his provision and empowerment. Now, we're in a different dispensation, which is a time period, a biblical time period. In our biblical time period, we do not have the same covenant as the people in Haggai's day did. They had specific promises of blessing for obedience and specific promises of curses for disobedience. Because we don't have that, it's not as easy to identify when sin is a source of our problems today. But consider, if we do not live God's way, if we turn away from God and his way of life, if he's no longer our priority, then we are removing ourselves from his blessing in many ways. By turning away from God to pursue our own path, we remove ourselves, we walk away from an intimate relationship with God. We don't lose our salvation, but we lose that sense of intimacy because we're walking away from him. We're walking away from spiritual empowerment. We're walking away from spiritual growth. God will focus on bringing you back instead. That'll be your step. We're also walking away from a full manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, things we cherish like joy and peace. And that's why we need to learn to live by faith and obedience to God's revelation instead of relying on our own ideas. We need to find our values, our goals, 
our priorities, our attitudes, our methods in God's revelation, in the Bible, instead of in our worldly, fleshly ideas. Listen, whatever we have to give up in the world to stay close to God, it's worthwhile to give it up. If you want to be successful in the Christian life, you have to buy into this concept. At any given moment, you're facing choices. The ultimate path of blessing is always to choose God's way, no matter what it costs you. If you can't buy that, you're going to struggle. When we struggle, we like to blame someone else, right? Or maybe we blame our culture, some aspect of it. It's the system. It's what I was born into. Sometimes we even want to blame God. But in this situation, in Haggai's community, God told the people to look within. Because most often, and I know this is true at least in my life, most often we dig our own holes. That's not to say you don't have external problems. But first, you have to look inward. As pastor and scholar David Leggett wrote, there is need for the godly process of examining our lives in light of Scripture. Are we missing out in our Christian life by not walking each day closely with the Lord Jesus? So this week, consider your ways, right? Go ahead and examine your life. Look at your schedule. Look at your budget. Look at your attitudes, your priorities, your goals. Be prepared as you prayerfully do this, I hope, to confess and repent if you need to. Be willing, like Haggai's community, to see your error and change your life. One more thought. Under the Mosaic Covenant, people didn't have the Holy Spirit within. And that's one reason it was impossible for them to fully overcome their corruption and always walk with God instead of in sin. But there were times, as we saw today, when God would inspire, motivate, energize, encourage, so that the people did respond to his revelation with faith and obedience. One promise about the new covenant that we have today is that God would protect his people by writing his law on their hearts. God said he would make it spiritually possible for people, his people, to walk with him and avoid sin always. In our time period, we do have the Holy Spirit within, providing us moment-by-moment moment guidance and empowerment. Plus, we have a new spiritual birth and progressive sanctification, which is a transformation process to make us more like Christ and less corrupted, less sinful. So like this remnant of believers 2,500 years ago, we, as God's people, in a covenant relationship with him, should eagerly respond to God's revelation with faith and obedience. Because more than anything, we want to be in his light, in his will, in close relationship with him. We, too, should be motivated by fearful reverence for God, the authority of his scripture in our lives, our hope and assurance from his promises, and his spirit stirring us up, just like the people in Haggai's day, stirring us up to pursue his kingdom and his righteousness in close relationship with him. Let me pray again. 
Father, we thank you for your revelation in Haggai chapter 1. And we ask that, that you would use it in our hearts and our minds today. That even though this message to Haggai's people was about building the temple, that we can see important truths that apply to us. That we need to be fully devoted to you. That you need to be the priority in our lives. That we actually live for you instead of living for ourselves and just asking you to bless it. And we ask that you help us learn how to depend on you better. Most of us probably want that. We want to know that you're going to come through for us. But it's hard sometimes not to take things into our own hands, not to force the issue, not to rely on sketchy human methods to accomplish what we want instead of waiting for you to bless us. So we pray that you would empower us in these things and that you would stir us up inside, that we would be more excited about pursuing a life of intimacy with you and learning from your revelation so that we can walk in your light, in your will, all the time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like a devotion that goes with this sermon, you can find it on my website. It's just my last name, Groben, G-R-O-B-E-N.com. Go to the Bible study menu, click down Old Testament prophecy. You'll see a full series on Haggai that I did for my church up in Pennsylvania. There's a devotion that goes with this. One more thing I want to mention before I go. One thing that Pastor Charlie really excels at is to show you how everything in Scripture points to Christ. As you see, I preach a little bit differently, hopefully not too disappointingly. But the things we're talking about today, these blessings in our time period, having the Holy Spirit live within us, having intimacy with God himself, being able to walk in his light and obedience, responding in faith to his revelation, all these things depend on having a faith-based relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you're wondering what that is, if you're not sure whether you have that, if you'd like to know what the Bible says really about Jesus instead of what you hear in the newspapers or from liberal seminary presidents, <laughs> if you want to know what the true gospel is, get in touch with Pastor Charlie because nothing delights a pastor more than being able to share gospel truth with somebody. That's why we're here. We bring people to faith in Christ. We build them up in Christ. We send them out to do the same. My part's done. Thanks for having me. Jim's going to take over and push the right button over here, and we're going to have communion. Very good. Thank you, Will. Okay.